Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome to Space Junk. I'm your host, Annie Hanmer, and I'm doing a PhD in space stuff or something at the University of Sydney. But right off the bat, I have to tell you that I'm so excited because I've just ordered a new set of microphones. The set that have served me really well for the last 18 months or so have finally reached a point where I can no longer put up with or iron out their idiosyncratic foibles in post-production. And I'm about to replace them with some much swankier equipment, courtesy in part of my supporters on Patreon. Thank you, team. Unfortunately, this is the episode which made me realize just how dire the situation was. Please forgive the occasional crackling sound. I can confirm that despite the malfunctions and how it sounds, neither myself nor my amazing guest, Donna Lawler, were harmed in the making of this podcast. Donna is a commercial space lawyer with decades of experience working mainly with Optus Satellite and is currently the principal at Azimuth Advisory, which provides advice and assistance to governments and businesses who are engaged in space activities. She's also quite well-rounded in that she's the Deputy Chair of Performance Space, Australia's leading agency for interdisciplinary arts. The music which opens this podcast is Debussy's Claire de Lune, played specially for us by up-and-coming Australian musician James Hu. As ever, the opinions expressed by me in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of any organisation with which I am associated. I'm here with Donna Lawler, who is the principal at Azimuth Advisory, Australia's first law firm specialising in space activities. Donna, it's such a pleasure to sit down with you today over a cup of coffee. How are you doing? Well, it's delightful to be here and thank you for bringing me a coffee that's going to make this whole podcast a lot happier. (laughs) Not at all, not at all. So I wanted to start by asking you, how did you come to be a space lawyer? Yeah, well, I, I, 20 years ago, I started working as an in-house lawyer at Optus, which is Australia's challenger brand telecommunications company, thinking that I was going to be doing multimedia. But of course, as the new girl uh, and the, the new technology lawyer on the block, I was given the least popular job, which was looking after Optus Satellite. And at the time, I didn't know that Optus had a satellite business, but in fact, they were the originally called Ossat, which was Australia's government-owned satellite company, which was then privatised, changed its name to Optus, given a mobile licence for good measure, 
And uh, now most people in Australia are very, well, everyone in Australia is familiar with Optus as a, a phone company. Not, people, not many people know that they also have a fleet of satellites that does all of the broadcasting across Australia. And you say that it was the least popular job in the firm. That's hard for me to believe because these days anything with space in front of it sounds really, really cool. Why was it that you think it was so unpopular? Well, it was just just right at the peak of the tech boom and the sexy thing was multimedia. So everybody was saying content is king. Everybody wanted to have multimedia in their title, head of multimedia, head of internet. Although that is, that is actually what people was blowing people's hair back. Uh, the satellite business was regarded as an area for um, perhaps it was a little bit of an unknown and eccentric area, I suppose. So on my first day when I arrived, I found on my desk a copy of the Australian Space Activities Act 1998, which annexed the five major space treaties, starting with the Outer Space Treaty and going all the way through to the um, Moon Agreement. And a man appeared in front of my desk whose name was Dr Gordon Pike and he introduced himself as the Optus uh, rocket scientist and he said if you're going to be looking after Optus satellite then you need to read these. So I sat down and started reading the Space Activities Act and uh, my uh, eyes were popping out of my head really. It was, I was quite amazed at what I read. So that was my first introduction to space law as such. I, I'd, yeah. I'd been asked... In previous roles, I'd been asked to give advice to Iridium and Teledesic and really looking at telecommunications advice, but I'd never really contemplated that there was space law sitting behind it. I spent 20 years at Optus uh, on big space programs uh, for buying big spacecraft, doing tender processes, launching big spacecraft, uh, and helping um, on the management team of, of Optus Satellite. Mm. Uh, very exciting, wonderful 20 years, and I, I still very much love Optus Satellite and still uh, working with them. Uh, but I went to a conference a, a couple of years ago, about a, yeah, I suppose it's two years ago now, at, in Canberra, and I think you were there, Annie. And for the first time, I suddenly realised that there was a critical mass of new space companies mm. that were interested in doing things in Australia in space. And people quote all sorts of numbers, but I think people were saying there were 89 space companies, which might have been a bit of an exaggeration. Mm. But it was clear that there was a, a good number of companies that were actually getting traction and getting funding. I'd been helping a number of these companies informally on the side for about four years and getting lots of inquiries, and but there's only so much you can do as an in-house lawyer. Legally, you can't give them legal advice, and you're mm. not insured if you do so. So I wasn't able to give them legal advice, just nudges and tips. Uh, and so I realised it was time to move beyond nudges and tips and uh, started making plans to uh, create a, a law firm because they're really wasn't anybody in commercial law in Australia that I was aware of that has that 20 years of experience in how one does things in space. Mm. And I, I think the important thing to remember is that space transactions are very different from terrestrial transactions. All of the, all space contracts look a bit different to, well, really very different to commercial contracts 
that are only de dealing with terrestrial things and the risks are managed using a different philosophy and a different um, whole set of different clauses. So my fear was all these little companies would start using technology lawyers that had no experience in space and they would get themselves into trouble. One of the differences that I found really interesting actually from your talk at that very conference about two years ago was around liability during launch and how mm. contracts are structured mm. um, to spread risk. Because obviously when you're launching a satellite with a rocket, it can always go wrong. I've just been watching a show called Succession and there's a, there's oh. a rocket launch that blows up spectacularly in that. So things happen and it mm. is a really risky venture. Yes. And who has the responsibility at that time? Actually, there's a lot of money riding on that, I think. Yes, um, yes. But especially with those big programs where the, the, the whole program might be 400 million US dollars or, or more. Yeah, mm. so is that kind of the key difference in the contracts, do you think? Is it around risk? What, mm. what are some of the other differences that you might see? Well, well one of the key, key differences is around risk and the relationship between how you manage the risks and insurance. And so your whole aim is to avoid fights between two insurance companies. So it's all about defining when risks pass and doing that in, a, in ways that make sense with all of the documents in the transaction, which might be the spacecraft purchase agreement, the launch agreement, the insurance policies. And they're all done at different times, but they all have to dovetail somehow magically mm. without seeing the other documents. So it's a little bit of a confidence trick in a way. Uh, you have to know what is going to be in the future documents and put it in the early documents. So working it out as you go along is not a good idea. Mm. The other things that are very different, for example, are if you think about a, a standard terrestrial contract where you are buying a big computer system that's going to be on Earth, it's going to have a whole lot of clauses in there that are absolutely standard on Earth about if it breaks, you will fix it or you will give a warranty that it will, will work or you will keep spares or you will send a technician to uh, adjust it. And there are um, a, num a whole lot of clauses that really make up the bulk of those terrestrial contracts that when you cut and paste them into space simply don't work. Mm. So if your spacecraft is 30,000 kilometres above the point where you're standing you're not going to be able to send a technician to fix it. So you need to manage the risk in a different way. Mm. And uh, customers who are buying satellite services need to understand that as well. Right. But there are some companies in Australia that are beginning to develop on-orbit servicing capabilities or are proposing to do that. Mm. Um, and some other various different services. Could you give us a quick rundown of the current space industry in Australia? Because I think for some of the international listeners of this podcast, they might not be aware. And even for some of the Australian listeners, um, perhaps they, you know, they think of space, they think of launch, they might think of building satellites. But mm. there are many other areas that Australia is growing in. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, we can start with launch, though, because that kind of makes sense. We might as well start on the, on the ground. There are uh, a couple of different launch facilities which are under development. There's one in the Northern Territory called Equatorial Launch and there's one in South Australia called Southern Launch uh, and they are currently being 
developed and they are uh, bringing in customers and doing contracts with uh, launch providers who might want to be launching from Australia. Because an advantage that Australia has is very quiet skies. So when you launch something, uh, you need to be you need to be very careful that you don't hit any ships or planes or anything really. So because we've got a, a big continent with a lot of relatively empty space compared to places like Europe and Asia, we are able to launch uh, over the ocean and you don't have to close down too many the skies for too long. There's not there's not many planes that are going to be affected. If you launch from the United States, for example, you have to close down the airspace for two hours and the airlines actually lose millions and millions of dollars every time you do that. Mm. So that's just launch. Then we've got Gilmore Space developing launch vehicles. We've got um, Matt Tetlow at Innovor building spacecraft, um, small spacecraft, which he's selling to government and, and research institutions. We've got a whole lot of universities uh, building CubeSats for uh, remote sensing and testing items. We've got two fabulous companies that are putting up constellations of small satellites that enable the Internet of Things, so machine-to-machine uh, uh, communications. So that's Miriota and Fleet, both amazing companies, and they're working on their building their constellations uh, of small satellites as we speak. Uh, and then we've got some exotic missions being planned as well, some of which I can talk about and some of which can't. But, for example, there are there is an Australian mission that's being planned which will involve a space tug which will be taking small satellites all the way up to lunar orbit and that will be built pretty much entirely in Australia. So people might not be aware of some of those things. Then there are people in the region planning in-orbit servicing missions. Then lastly, if you go all the way up to the moon, we have Australian companies planning robotics and mining activities and planning planning their technologies for extracting water from lunar regolith, as well as a whole lot of robotics companies that are planning incredible things that can be done at a huge distance. Mm. So that's a little bit of a fast overview but the ecosystem in Australia is so much more surprising than you might imagine. Last week we had the off-earth mining forum that was hosted at UNSW Mm. and I think there was a lot of excitement in that in Australia because we do have a lot of mining capability and we've got a lot of capability around using remote operations and robotics to do that mining. That's something Mm. that Australia's really developed to a, a very high level. But when it comes to doing that off Earth, I think there are still some perhaps considerations around the legal mechanisms by which that can occur, Hmm. which still need to be ironed out. So I'm interested to talk about this in more detail Hmm. because space mining or asteroid mining, it just has, it's such such an exciting idea, this notion that you can just fly to an asteroid that's all made of diamonds and mine it and then bring it all back and sell it and make squillions of dollars. Mm. Of course, there are technical limitations. Like we still realistically, despite all of the hype, are not at a stage where we can really go somewhere and pick up anything and bring it back. Mm. Maybe, you know, a small sample. A few few grains like the Hayabusa from the Japanese space agency is successfully done. 
but yeah. but there's a, it's a long way between a few brains and and a, a full-on mining operation absolutely but at the same time i think that the fact that there is that excitement gives us scope to think about mm. how it ought to happen from um, a legal and social standpoint aside from that technical capability mm. which is still being developed yeah well that's to do that we have to think about the whole framework um, starting with the international and then looking at the looking at the national and then mm-hmm. realizing that no one country is going to be able to do this by themselves there's going to have to be collaboration between co- different countries so we're going to need to understand the international framework and then all of the individual national space laws to the extent that they have them in in each of the participating countries mm. so I don't think we should assume that it'll just be the United States going it alone although when they talk about it they they often assume that they will be the only ones but we've got India China and then even Australia making plans to do that and once again I, I'm not an expert at a international lawyer but I I am married to one, so we do talk about it a lot. The Outer Space Treaty, which is the, the, it's a cliche now to say it's the Magna Carta of international space law, sets out a number of principles and almost all spacefaring countries have signed that and, and, are, and are parties. And it, it sets out a whole lot of principles, including that space is free for all to explore and that it should be done for the benefit of all mankind but we'll say humankind Uh, and a number of other principles about not not appropriating space and not making any um, claims of sovereignty even by by use Mm. so when you put your flag on the moon it doesn't mean that your country is claiming any sovereignty over it and um, the United States despite doing that very publicly the first time they landed landed there they were very clear that they weren't claiming sovereignty despite that apparent symbolism Moving then to the Moon Agreement, which is the last of the space treaties and which only 18 countries are actually a party to so far, uh, the, the Moon Agreement actually contemplates future use of resources, both on the Moon and also what's called other celestial bodies, so things like asteroids. So it's always been contemplated since the 1970s that uh, resource use, extraction, exploration would all take place in in space. It was assumed it would happen. I don't think they realised it would take quite so long, uh, but here we are. Uh, and so the moon, moon Agreement contemplates that just before that exploitation of resources is about to take place, that the states' parties, the the so far only 18 parties to that, that agreement, would get together and create an international regime which would cover how to allocate the licences. Some of this is not written in the Moon Agreement, but it's assumed that you would have to allocate a fair, a fair way of allocating who can mine what, some kind of rational system for doing that, and then how to protect the Moon environment and uh, other regulation about mining activities but then importantly, a mechanism for sharing the benefits of that activity based on keeping in mind the needs of developing countries as well as the input by the company or, or the country that's been engaged in the mining activity. So that's the general framework. 
I would also add that the Moon Agreement expressly contemplates the use of space resources for scientific mission, uh, even prior to, in my view, even prior to the establishment of such a regime. Something that I think that Australia has potential to explore is whether or not there is an express pathway to conducting the the use of moon resources for scientific missions already already baked into the moon agreement um, and that's of course what a lot of companies are now in the in the space ecosystem mm. are looking at extracting water resources from the moon to supply to NASA for its scientific missions to Mars and Australia's domestic law doesn't as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, doesn't really deal with space mining or mm. space resource mining at this stage. But no. other countries have done that. So the US and Luxembourg mm. um, have laws that on the face of it appear to say that it is legal for companies in those countries to go and mine resources and then keep the profits. Yes. Is it is that just all there is to it? Like if I'm an Australian company and I want to go and mine something, am I better off moving to Luxembourg or to the US for the purposes mm. of doing that? Um, or is it a bit more complicated? Mm. I, think it's, I think it's not quite so clear. I think there have been some initial thoughts about why can't Australia pass laws like that that give us the right to, to own the resources. And one of the key things if you're thinking about investing in a mining venture is going to be uh, do we own what we mine? And you wouldn't want to invest in something if you weren't sure that you owned it. So the US and Luxembourg have both tried to solve that problem by passing laws that say, yes, you definitely own it. But there is a little bit of a, um, a, a qualifier in both cases. And in both cases, both in the US and in Luxembourg, they say you are able to capable of owning those resources in accordance with our international obligations. So in both cases, the, the ownership is subject to international law. And I think that's a big qualifier because they're attempting to say you own the space resources that you mine, but they also nod, are really forced to nod to the fact that, it, that any such ownership is subject to international law. So... To my mind, there is a potential argument that that somebody could challenge that even within those countries by saying, well, you only own it subject to international law and international law is very unclear about whether you own those resources and who knows what might happen in the future. It's possible that there may be uh, an international court of justice decision. They could give a declaratory opinion. It could at some stage become clear that you don't own those moon resources. Or, or it could go the other way. There could be a, an opinion that says you do own those moon resources um, if, you, if you mine them. It's, it's still, uh, it's, it still hasn't been decided. And indeed, next year there will be some international discussions in order to discuss the international rules that are going to be applying in the future to any such mining of the moon if that happens. And so um, that could happen either under the Moon Agreement or under a separate regime. It's mm. being, it's, the discussions have been ongoing for years at an international level, but they're actually hitting a very serious and very focused stage 
starting next year. And one of the co-chairs of those talks will be Professor Stephen Freeland, who is an Australian and who is also my husband, as I mentioned. So we're going to be watching those very closely. I bet. Mm. So in essence then, the issue is that if you're a company that is looking to go and mine resources for commercial purposes and you're looking at doing that out of the US or Luxembourg because they have laws that seem to say that that's okay and you can keep your profits. Mm. But someone like me, for example, uh, like the Space Junk podcast could raise a bit of money and launch a case against you saying, even though you've done this and your country's domestic law said that this was okay, on Mm. international law, maybe it's not. And so there is still some uncertainty. So in essence, the company itself then is taking on the risk rather than the national government taking on the risk of the ambiguity. Yes, I think think in both cases, the US government and the Luxembourg government have pushed the risk back onto the company Mm. uh, to say, and and it depends how you read it. You could actually read particularly the US laws. I think it's inherently ambiguous the way it's written. You could read it one way or the other. Mm. But either way, if there is potential for a challenge, uh, it, it, it means that it's, I would have thought, not rock solid mm. uh, in Luxembourg and the USA. And it, it's like, for example, making a statement about the laws of physics. You could say we can travel to Mars in 15 seconds subject to the laws of physics. Mm. So that doesn't mean that you can actually travel to the to Mars in 15 seconds because the laws of physics might actually stop you from right. doing that. Uh, so similarly, you can say space resources are capable of being owned subject to international law. It, it has the same logical circularity. And the international law itself is still in the process of being defined, right? Exactly. So, so it may be that um, over the next decade, international law settles on something fairly concrete yes and it could be there are many in the in in the in the u.s that for example that are very uh aggressively stating no 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 international law says we're free to explore and use we definitely are going to own these things but just Mm. because the u.s says these things in some quarters in an aggressive way um the actual state department and diplomats who are at the United Nations are not nearly as aggressive in the way that they put it. Some of their academics are, but the their diplomats are are not quite as certain. Right, uh, and and they are indeed likely to participate in in the discussions. So, the current administration in the United States is not particularly keen on global solutions to problems, uh, but these this is quite a long term. So we'll see how those talks play out and how they interact with potential regimes under the Moon Agreement. But meanwhile, for Australian companies and companies that are based in countries that have signed the Moon Agreement, I query whether there is an actual path right now to greater legal certainty Mm. than in non-Moon Agreement countries because the Moon Agreement specifically and very expressly permits use of lunar and um, celestial body resources for scientific purposes. So the initial uh, activities that are going to happen with respect to these resources will almost certainly be for scientific purposes. 
And by that I mean not pretend scientific purposes like whaling in Antarctica, but genuine scientific purposes with peer-reviewed journals and there are international law cases that particularly about whaling that specifically define what scientific purposes mean. So it's not something you can just tick a box and, and, and fake scientific purposes. But, not, but NASA is a scientific organisation, so its missions, uh, I would imagine, you could fairly easily prove are for scientific purposes. So what that means is under the laws existing right now in Australia, uh, the Australian government, which grants licences for launches and returns, could, I would argue, right now, tomorrow, uh, grant a licence for a moon resource use for scientific purposes uh, lawfully today. Now, they would be naturally very cautious about doing so and they'd want to understand all the implications of doing so and whether it's in the national interest. But uh, I think that's something that Australian companies can explore and query whether that could actually be an advantage to Australian companies and other companies that, that, that are registered in countries that have signed the Moon Agreement, which is contrary to what people have been saying. People have been saying, oh, poor you, you've signed the Moon Agreement, you can't do anything. Mm. And this is one of the great myths of, of space, is the idea that the Moon Agreement prohibits everything and that, you know, Australia's really got our hands tied with it. Yes. But yes. actually, I think it gives a lot of certainty. And Article 11 does give a lot of scope for a regime to be developed, which realistically, will probably need to happen at some point anyway, regardless yes. of whether the moon agreement exists, because people need to have certainty around their funding decisions and so on. I yes. mean, I suppose space will not be very exciting forever. And mm. at some point, people won't be just throwing away some money on it for fun. Mm. They'll actually want some certainty behind it. It'll become more mundane. Yes. And I guess if you're running a mining operation, that's what you want. You don't want that kind of startup beanbags vibe all the way through. At some point, it needs to become an actual commercial operation. Yeah, I think I think space investment has a bit of a uh, a coolness premium. Mm. So the idea of doing something in space, it has it has a, a kind of an inspiration premium. So there are there are if you look at the 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 level of certainty and the level of risk that people are prepared to take. There is probably, at least in the case of people like Bezos and, and Elon Musk, um, a, uh, a you could call it a coolness factor, but it's also possibly an ego factor in some cases. Mm. Um, and uh, I think there is also a national competition premium on it. So the, the, the very fact that an ecosystem around the moon is being contemplated, uh, and I mean a commercial ecosystem, is probably arising out of national competition between the United States, Russia, China, India, uh, which is the whole reason why we ended up with an outer space treaty in the first place. It, it all came out of the Cold War and and concern and the space race and concern that either Russia or the United States would get ahead. And so, mm. despite this treaty being negotiated and formed at the most tense period. Well, one of the most tense periods in history between the, the United States and Russia, which is the, the height of the Cold War, incredibly they were able to identify their common interests in abiding by these principles. Mm. And I still think it is uh, almost miraculous today that they, that they did that. 
but it gives me a lot of hope that even fierce rivals can identify that working together is often in the common interest of everybody. So we always have these uh, competitive versus cooperative competing, competing philosophies in space. And mm. I would personally like to emphasise the cooperative because uh, when people's egos get out of control, and I mean that in a very big way, people and countries and individuals and uh, leaders of countries and uh, leaders of companies, billionaires, at some stage the egos need to be put aside and the national competition needs to be put aside and we need to all think, okay, would we all be better off if we cooperated, mm. even though we are competitors in many ways? And I think space is one of those areas. Donna, this has been exceptionally interesting. Um, I hope listeners have found it interesting. I certainly have. Is there anything that you would say to someone who was listening and maybe interested in learning more about law and space law in particular? Um, how does one go about becoming a space lawyer these days? What are the things that people ought to be studying, reading? I know I have some listeners who are in high school. Mm. So um, where should they be angling themselves? How should they be thinking about approaching this if they, mm. you know, if they want to follow in your footsteps and oh. do some domestic space law? Mm. So firstly, firstly, if you want to be a space lawyer, you need to become a lawyer. So that would be step one. Um, but then there are many different flavours of lawyers who are now and who will be in the ecosystem, space ecosystem of the future involved in, in space. So I think becoming space savvy in, in, uh, is going to be beneficial for lawyers in all fields, whether they're in finance or in commercial negotiations or in policy or regulation um, or even uh, mining or technology. There's a whole lot of issues. Um, you might be acting for buyers of safe space services or um, th there are many ways of participating in the space economy. So I would say get on top of your field and then uh, become space savvy as part of it by studying space law at university as a topic, perhaps doing a master's in at one of the universities that offer space law masters in um, McGill in Canada or in Leiden University um, or uh, um, you could do a, a PhD here in, in Australia if you wanted to. There are a number of paths. And if people go and Google something after they listen to this podcast, what should they Google? Oh, I think they should uh, Google the, well, go to the UN USA site, so the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs and you'll find there all of the treaties. There, there are, if you are a bit of a space nerd, they're actually quite a fun read and it's quite inspiring to see what those principles were. So have a read of the treaties all the way through to the, the Moon Agreement, which you and I, Annie, both are very fond of. It is my favourite. <laughs> actually, I was asked recently by um, my partner what I would like for Christmas and I said I wanted a set of all of the space treaties and the Antarctic Treaty um, like a little box set. Oh. They'd be very short. And it, it's come to both of our attention that this does not exist. So I might have to DIY and make my own, I think. Oh, I think I actually have a bound version at home, which was given to me by Dr. Gordon Pike, whom I mentioned at the beginning. A little, little set of lever arch folders with updates 
which was kind of hopeful that they did it in the form of LibreArch folders that can be regularly updated because they really haven't <laughs> been updated many times over the last few decades. Uh, but uh, I, uh, I think that's probably the one of the nerdiest presents I've ever heard anybody ask for, and I love you for it. <laughs> Look, I'm nothing if not a nerd. Thank you so much. It's been really lovely talking to you. And if you wanted to um, find out more about Donna, you can Google Azimuth Advisory and find her very minimalist website, which I'm a big fan of. Yes. Um, it's, I think there are other Azimuth Advisories. You'd have to get the .com.au oh, in azimuthadvisory.com.au. And also keep a lookout because Donna often speaks at events around Sydney and I believe we'll be heading to Melbourne next year for an event as well, potentially. And you know that because you'll be speaking there as well. That's right. Um, so we'll hear more about that just before that event. But keep a lookout for where Donna is speaking because everything she says is wonderful and you'll thank yourself for going. Oh, thank you so much, Annie. You've been listening to Space Junk. To find out more about Donna Lawler, you can search her on LinkedIn or go to azimuthadvisory.com.au. If you have questions, email them to thespacejunkpod at gmail.com or look me up on Twitter or Instagram at at Annie Hanma. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support its ongoing production, you can head to www.patreon.com slash thespacejunkpod and sign up to contribute a set amount each month. You can also support it by rating it five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening or simply recommending episodes to your friends. Thank you and see you next week. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.